Hello. Hello. How's it going? Hi. My name is Kenna. I'm Coel. Why don't you have your headset on? My hair is wet and I don't want headset hair. Mm. <laughs> so it's underneath my neck. So I can hear literally everything else that's going on in this room right now, but you can't. Yeah. You're wearing like noise canceling headsets. And you can't hear yourself. And I can't on, hear myself. Like, in your ears. Yeah. Ooh. I can't, I can't even hear, I mean, I can hear you clearly because yeah. you're talking to me, but I don't have no idea what it's going to sound like. All right. Well, it sounds fine because I can hear it in my okay, head. <laughs> Welcome back to Diagnosing a Killer. We're really excited about this case. I'm super excited. So excited. a little bit different. Okay. I know we've talked about we're going to do some pretty big names. However, I'm going to put in the title Mystery Killer because I don't want it to be given away. So it's a mystery to me and the listeners. Yep. Okay. All at once. Let's get started. This is going to be a very long episode. I'm excited for a very long episode, though. We're not going to do a two-parter for this. We're just going to give it all to you. Um, So it's probably going to end up being close to an hour and a half, maybe two hours. But obviously, if you need to take a pee break, you can pause us. (laughs) (laughs) We won't be, though. We're going to sit here in these tiny chairs until our asses fall asleep. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. January 19th, 1991. Mm -hmm. Dolores Davis, a 62-year-old woman who was retired and living alone in her home in Sedwick County, Kansas was getting ready for bed. Any of those dates or names or states? Not yet. <laughs> Just January, and I was, I was hoping it was a birthday, because I'd be like, oh. Capricorn! No, <laughs> this is not a birthday. <laughs> this is very much the opposite. Oh, no. It was a very cold night, so she locked up, got cozy in bed, and eventually fell into a deep sleep. After she had been asleep for a little while, Dolores awoke to a very loud noise coming from the side of her house. Thinking a car had run off the road and into her home, <gasps> she arrived that loud. That loud. Oh my gosh. She arrived by the glass side door to see that, in fact, a cinder block had been thrown in through it in a break-in attempt. Into her sliding glass door? Oh, that's yeah, creepy like already. Through it. Oh, like gosh. Like, oh, no. This is like was purge. Oh. Yeah. yeah, literally. <laughs> Dolores quickly realized that this attempt had been successful, and she locked eyes with her intruder. <gasps> I literally have goosebumps. The man explained that he was a criminal that was on the run, and he was in need of food, money, warmth, and a car. The man also explained that while he was acquiring these items, he was going to tie her up in order to make sure she didn't try to escape. Sound familiar yet? No. Dolores complied and went to grab the keys to her vehicle, the man making small talk with her calmly the entire time. Ew. uh... Creepy. After the man had the car keys, he handcuffed Dolores to a chair in her room and went about the house, seemingly making some food for himself even, and gathering things he needed for his escape. Okay, that does sound a little familiar, but okay, all right. I'm like making all these faces, like, do you know, do you know, do you know? After a while, the man walked out to the car to put the things in it, and it seemed as though he was leaving. Unfortunately, this was his plan, and he knew the entire time that he would return to Dolores and that she was not going to be left unharmed. What? So he took, wait, okay, 
All right. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. So he went to her house, told her this was his plan, but he didn't just have a change of heart before he left. He knew that he wasn't going to leave her unharmed the entire time, so but he, he just told her something different. So he left in the car? He went out to the car to put the things he had gathered oh. in it, and it seemed as though he was, he was also going to leaving, leave. but then he returns. Ooh. Content warning. The man returned to Dolores' bedroom, and after rummaging through her things for a bit, he had come across a pair of her pantyhose. The man used the pantyhose and wrapped them around Dolores' neck, ultimately strangling her to death. After the man was sure that Dolores had passed, he wrapped her in a blanket and drug her body to her own car and placed her in the trunk of it. <sighs> At this point, the man had, quote, snapped back to re- <laughs> snap back, back to, to reality. reality. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. That's hilarious. So, at this point, the man had snapped back to reality and remembered that he actually had a prior commitment that he had left in order to commit this murder. So he knew he needed to return soon or risk being noticed as absent. He was like, oh, look at the time. Yeah. After taking off from the house, the man dumped Dolores' body by a lake near Park City, where he hid her body and the other evidence under some trees and headed back to her home to put her vehicle back. Every time you say something, I feel like that's an like that's a specific MO, but I also feel like in my mind they're MOs from different killers yeah. for some reason. You know, yeah. like like the eating the thing remind like eating out of the fridge reminds me of the guy with the plates. Is it the guy okay. with the plates? I think that's Golden State, but it's not him. Okay, because he's I the think, one that did or that's either Golden State or that's Kemper or so I don't I really It wasn't don't know. Kemper. It was the guy with the plate. You know how he yeah, like, I know you're talking about and it's he would terrifying. Eat, like make sandwiches. Yeah. Okay, that's, well, I think that. <laughs> but then I think the under the tree thing, I think, um, like, kind of like Andre Chikatilo, where he would, like, mm-hmm. leave bodies by rivers, usually, yeah. in parks and under trees. Well, we've already done him, so that's not No, him. I know. I know it's not him, but I'm just, I'm racking my brain. Yes. So he returns back to Dolores' home in her vehicle. So this gets a little confusing. He had dumped her body with her own vehicle and brings it back. He had parked his own vehicle down the street as a order to not be noticed. Okay. So he went back to his vehicle. Okay. And then he was going to return to her again to move the body to a final location. I think he was just trying to get her out without using his car out of the house, and then he was going to use his car to Yeah, so it's like he's, again, it's like time crunch, like, yeah. kind of a thing. It's like, okay, first things first. Like, it's like a, like a priority list, right? right? Literally. Like, get her out of the car so I can return the car to get back to my car so that my car is not noticed, yep. and then go back and exactly. then move her to a, a different location or... Cover mm-hmm. her up somehow. Okay. So while he was getting all of the things he had stolen in the process into his vehicle, he realized that he was actually missing one of his guns, and he didn't re- didn't remember where it was. Hmm. Dumbass. Dummy. The man realized that he must have dropped it in the process of this whole endeavor, so he went back to her house with his own car, <laughs> where he found <laughs> his gun lying on the floor by the back door where he had broken it. <laughs> Dumbass. <Okay>. Dummy. <laughs> Now that it was really time for him to leave, he wiped the vehicle down for fingerprints, her vehicle, and threw the keys onto the roof of the house to get rid of them, or I guess throw someone off if they tried to find it. Yeah. Walter White and the pizza. Yeah, literally. <laughs> literally. It was an accident. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he returned to his own car again, and then drove back to where he dumped Dolores' body in order to move it to the final location. Okay. Upon arriving at the body, he put her back into the trunk, this time his own vehicle, and drove to a secluded place under a bridge in Sedwick County, where he dumped her body for good. Now, I mentioned that this man had a prior commitment that he was needing to return to. Mm -hmm. The man left the scene and headed back to where he was needing to go, changing his clothes in the process. Where was he going, you ask? This is where you're going to find out who it is, because I know you know this. 
Well, this man was returning to a Boy Scout camp where he was the <gasps> troop leader. On top of this, he was also a husband, father, community asset, and even president of his church council. Okay, I know who it is. That's right. We're going to be talking about the infamous <sighs> Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK. <laughs> <laughs> All of the goosebumps. <laughs> Ooh, I'm excited. I'm so excited now. Everyone take a deep breath. This, oh, this is going to be a doozy. I know. This is going to be a doozy. So I wanted to lie, kind of lie out um, his last murder. Mm-hmm. So that was in detail his last murder. But we're going to go all the way back to when Dennis Lynn Rader was born. Dennis Lynn Rader was born on March 9th, 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas to William Elvin Rader and Dorothea May Cook. Dennis was the oldest of four sons, his younger brothers being Paul Rader, born in 1947, William Bill Rader, born in 1949, and Jeff Rader, born in 1955. Hmm. Although he was born in Pittsburgh, Dennis and his brothers were raised in Wichita, Kansas. Wichita. Wichita. I love that name. Their father, William, was a member of the U.S. Marine Corps, who later worked for the electricity utility KG&E after World War II, seemingly when they moved to Wichita. I actually couldn't find what his mom did for a living, but it did state that both of his parents worked very often, uh, resulting in Dennis feeling like neglected and ignored by them, especially his mother. And we'll definitely see that he ended up resenting her a lot for yeah. not being around a lot when he was a kid. What's the age difference between the brothers? I'm sorry. Uh, so he was born in 45. His youngest brother was born in 55. So okay, it's like so two to four year gaps between, between each, the, two. Yeah, each okay. of So Dennis was said to have joined the Boy Scouts in his youth. Weird. <laughs> and he attended Riverview Elementary School. He was also known to have participated in group activities in the local Lutheran church because they were regulars. Although he had his extracurricular activities, Dennis was considered an average to below average student and extremely introverted. Hmm. He was noted as being a withdrawn child in school, and it really doesn't surprise me due to the lack of attention he was getting at home. Uh, it kind of seems as though he was just used to being ignored, so he just like shut down like yeah. on his own. Do you think, like, doing extracurricular activities kind of helped garner a little bit more attention for himself? Probably, yeah. Like he was thinking, you know, the more I, the more active I am, the more people are going to notice. Yeah, yeah, probably. Now, Dennis would later admit that he actually began developing fantasies about domination, bondage, and torture at a very early age in grade school. Hmm. So I have no idea where this, like, it seemingly comes out of nowhere. Control, maybe? Oh, probably. Yeah. Definitely. Well, duh, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like... At, but at a young age, right? You would feel yeah. like you have to be exposed to that. Yes, but now, if we think about it, there was... We know there was neglect in the household, but there's also three other very young boys living in that home who didn't develop these feelings and ideas. So why was he special? Well, you know that, but... Well, they didn't become killers. <laughs> they didn't become BTK. Upon his later arrest, Dr. Tony Rourke, a forensic psychologist, evaluated Dennis and commented on why he believes something happened really early on in Dennis's life that, quote, spawned the BTK killer. Hmm. His statement said, quote, If Raider was completely honest, which he is not, I am sure that we would find some sort of childhood event that Raider immediately associated with feelings of sexuality. Somehow, very early on, Raider encountered an event where he immediately linked sexual pleasure with watching a living creature suffer and die. Hmm. And after that first encounter, Raider probably began to work very hard to nurture those feelings. Like in Boy Scouts, or probably wonder so. if- hunting had anything to do with Mm -hmm. it or camping you know and yeah but also it's like kind of annoying because it's it's the activities probably but it's also like a lot of uh, nature like he probably already had some skewed psyche that like those things caused him to kind of yeah because obviously not all boy scouts turn out to be no of course yeah and then uh, yeah exactly like maybe it was 
you know, like you said, that maybe he already had certain types of feelings, like maybe some type of eroticism mm-hmm. or something like that in his head. Yeah. And then when, you know, he's surrounded by boys and they're doing hunting and things mm-hmm. like that, maybe... Um, something clicked or something. Yeah, like you know, because, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that all young boys do that. You yeah. Know, my boy is a sweetheart. He would never. <laughs> oh, he <laughs> but would never. He would never. But, you know, like... It's like uh, ants in a magnifying glass. Yeah, you know course. what I mean? Things like that. At a certain age, though, we've talked about this before, that people grow out of that feeling of, like, when they finally realize that they're actually hurting a living creature, they stop. Yeah. And some people don't. And right. some people that don't are killers <laughs> later in life. It's just, you know, a fact. It, yeah, whether or not you develop that emotion or that um, empathy Boundary. or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Now, so it's safe to assume that if there is something specific that occurred causing him to develop these horrific fantasies, it's unknown because he's just never admitted to anything like that happening. Dr. Ruark was not the only psychologist to evaluate and comment on Dennis's younger years. Dr. Terence G. Leary, who helps lead the largest non-governmental serial killer database in the world, hmm. it's actually called uh, Radford slash FGCU Serial Killer Research, um, Dr. Leary made several comments on what he thinks of Dennis's childhood, making him into the infamous BTK killer. Mm-hmm. In an interview about the subject, Leary stated that Dennis's method of torture and murder are a sign of someone who was regularly exposed to, quote, horrific abuse. Hmm. Leary went on to say, quote, Dennis Rader has been an enigma to many of us in the field because I don't think the people who claim to be experts are regarding Dennis, and I'll tell you why. They say he was the squeaky clean, oldest of four boys, very traditional parents, traditional family, went to school, did the right things, etc., so there were no clues. According to Leary, there actually were clues that others had not seen. He stated that even if no one knew about his animal cruelty as a kid, he still showed plenty signs of antisocial behavior. So that is the, yeah. that is the clue. So content warning, this next part has to do with animals. Dennis would later admit that he had a history of animal abuse as a child, and he decided to act out these horrific fantasies on them first. He would frequently kill cats and dogs via hanging, which seemed to be his favorite way of torture and control as a child. It's awful. Once Dennis reached his pubic years, he began fantasizing about tying up girls and having his way with them. He would say that his fantasies were, quote, almost like a picture show, and that he wanted to direct and produce them in real life. It's terrifying. Like snuff films? Yeah. In fact, he recalled that the mouse keeper Annette Funicello from the original Mickey Mouse Club was one of his favorite subjects for imaginary bondage. What? Gross. Ugh. If I was her, I'd be like, ugh. Like, <laughs> about that. To one. know that, right? Just to know that. Was he also the one that was... No, who was about Jodie Foster? Somebody else was yeah. really about Jodie Foster. I don't know. I think it was um, Chapman, uh, the one that killed John Lennon. I'm pretty oh. sure it was. I don't know. He, he thought that, that, that Jodie Foster had told him to kill John Lennon. I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> Listeners, if you remember, I'm pretty sure it was John Chapman. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think there's a Family Guy skit about that, actually, now that I think about, it's about it. Yeah, like he thought Jody, like I said, that Jodie Foster told him to kill John Lennon. It's huh. interesting. That is weird. That's like schizophrenia, I think. Yeah, I like the, for sure. The mindset. On top of the obvious antisocial behavior and strange fantasies, of course, remember, he has a resentment for his mom. A forensic scientist by the name of Dr. Catherine Ramsland was able to interview Dennis for an episode of a TV show, and Dennis admitted some things to her as well. According to this interview, Dennis told Ramsland, quote, I got along real well with dad, but mom wasn't always so happy. I've always loved her. I still love her greatly, but I did have a little, a little bit of a grudge against mama. That's a quote. A little bit of a grudge against her. Hmm. 
Ramsland went on to tell a story of Dennis's that he believes may have contributed to his future terrorism of women. Ramsland stated, quote, when he was young, his mother's... His mother's... His mother. His mother's... His mother. Quote, when he was young, his mother's ring got caught on a couch spring and she couldn't get her hand out. She apparently was terrified and told him to go get help. And he felt the first stirrings of arousal over this. It was exciting to him to see a woman helpless, and it was the beginning of his ideas about women that he wanted from them was to keep them trapped and helpless and looking to him in terror. That became imprinted in his mind and became the image he was always after. Well, looking to him, like, for help, for help and attention. Like, you have, I have the power. Yeah, you have no other choice but to look at me for attention and help. Yeah. Lastly, Dr. Leary stated that if Dennis was ignored as a child, it may have led to this need for attention, just like you said. Are you a doctor? I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. I'm the doctor. (laughs) Quote, he is also narcissistic, the very, very strong need to be recognized. The other factor here is in family situations, he was the oldest, and the oldest is the guinea pig. Can you attest to that? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That is 100% accurate. You can ask Trish, too. (laughs) Quote, the parents could have behaved very differently towards him than they did the others. I've seen that in cases, and the other kids are spared some of the discipline and hard behavior, apparently, sometimes. It's true. So, like I said, around pubic age, Dennis began thinking about acting out his fantasies on young women. It was at this time that he also started cutting out female pictures from magazines and would draw ropes and gags on the pictures and actually pasted them onto index cards that he would carry around with him in his pockets. What? <laughs> That is so gross. I'd be like, what the fuck you got there, Den? I'm, I'm laughing at the ridiculousness. Yeah. And how old was he at this point? This was probably... 14? 14, 15, yeah. <gasps> Dennis also admitted that he would get sexually aroused when he was spanked as a child, and when he would see chickens waiting to get slaughtered. Where was he hanging out? <laughs> Maybe they had chickens at their house. Yeah, they had the chickens. I mean, they're in Kansas. <laughs> That's true. You just hang oh, out at the chicken land. farm all day? Yeah. He was also sexually excited when reading about notorious serial killers, and he would frequently read his father's book about the Lonely Hearts killers, <gasps> Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck. Damn. We've talked about them. If, if you haven't listened to that episode, listen to it, because we've talked about them, and it's wild that that connected. Yeah. It was a wild case to research, for sure. Definitely. It was an interesting story. Um, he even admitted to masturbating while reading this book. Gross. What? He's masturbating, like, because of their crimes. But, like, she's not a good-looking lady, so he definitely wasn't masturbating. <laughs> so yeah. I was laughing. She was frumpy. Well, he wasn't... He looked like... She was frumpy. Night of the li- Living Dead. No, literally. He's he terrible. Looked, yeah. He was creepy, sleazy-looking. He looked like the, um... The wolf cartoon from, like, Tex Avery. Oh, my God. The one's like... <sighs> like that one. <laughs> On top of these things, he would fantasize about tying women to train tracks... And engaged in autoerotic asphyxiation, also spying on his female neighbors. It's incredibly dangerous. He was also known to dress himself in women's clothing and bind things around his neck in order to increase the reality of the fantasy. This occurred throughout his middle school experience and into high school as well. Oh my god. It gets worse. It gets worse. It was also at this time that Dennis recalled first referring to his penis as sparky which is disgusting <laughs> so gross why when, give it a dog's name when he would <laughs> orgasm do you want to know what he called it what, S- what? sparky big time 
so gross. <laughs> that is so That's disgusting. Gross. Why give it a dog's name? I guess you couldn't call it Douglas. I don't know. Douglas, Douglas Big Time. Douglas Big Time. Oh. His name is Charles. Charles Big Time. <laughs> Charles Big Time, meow. All right. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. He's just such like an anomaly. Like he's he's a bum bumbling idiot. <laughs> he is. He's a dummy. He's proven it. Classmates that knew him per. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. He said it so seriously. <laughs> Classmates. <laughs> Classmates that knew him personally would describe him as quiet and polite, but he preferred to keep to himself. One friend of his stated that he completely lacked a sense of humor and was studious and focused. Yeah, that's called lack of empathy. That's dangerous. Yeah. He was also described as a person who thought through his words before speaking, and he would also give you his full attention as you spoke. Very stoic. That's kind of, well, I don't say that's kind of creepy. Yeah, I mean, whatever. That's nice. Yeah. Dennis graduated from Wichita High School in 1963 and quickly got a job at a grocery store. It wasn't until two years later in 1965 that Dennis got accepted to Kansas Wesleyan College in Salina, which was far enough away from Wichita to move out of the family home. However, he only lasted two semesters there, and in the summer of 1966, at the age of 21, Dennis decided to join the Air Force. Hmm. Dennis was sent to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Shut up. I swear to God. Shut up. I swear to God. Shut up right now. For basic training. No. He was here. Gross. (laughs) He was here. And so were mom and dad. They were both here at that time, too. (laughs) Well, dad was probably in Corpus, but still. What year? 66. Yeah, he was in Corpus. Mom was here, though. Because he was only 16. Oh, yeah, yeah. He spent some time at Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, after this, and did technical training there. In early 1967, Dennis was stationed at Brookley Air Force Base in Mobile, Alabama, and there was... <laughs> said that so... Mobile, Mobile Alabama. Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> and he was there until around January of 1968. This is when he was sent to Caden Air Force Base in Okinawa, West Pacific, where he remained for six months. In July of 1968, he was moved to mainland Japan, stationed at the Tachikawa Air Base near Tokyo, where he remained there until the end of his service in 1970. According to Dennis, he also spent time in Korea, Greece, and Turkey while in the Air Force. So he was, like, bounced around wow. in the whole world. He could have done something cool with it. I know. During his four years in the Air Force, Dennis attained the rank of sergeant and worked in the installation of antenna systems and repairing wires. He was known as just one of the guys and sort of blended in. He also received the Air Force Good Conduct Medal, the Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Ribbon, and the National Defense Service Medal. He also later confessed to peeking through blinds to watch women undress and even breaking into some homes to steal their undergarments on occasion during the entire time he was in the military. Mm, surprise, surprise. So it's like so, all these great things. And then he, oh, by the way, he confessed to all this. He's such a great guy. Yeah. But he steals panties. <laughs> he's a panty raider. He's a panty raider. <laughs> Dennis panty raider. <laughs> uh. He was discharged from active service in 1970 and returned home to Wichita, Kansas, where he spent two more years in the reserves. Once back home, he moved to a suburb in Park City, just seven miles north of Wichita. Here he got a job in a meat department at the local IGA. During this time, Dennis also reconnected with a girl from high school by the name of Paula Dietz, a fellow churchgoer and bookkeeper at the IGA. At this point, Dennis was 26 years old and Paula was 23. 
The two would marry on May 22nd of 1971, like six months after they reconnected. What? In 1972, Dennis left the grocery store and went to work at the Coleman Company, a manufacturer of camping supplies. <laughs> he lasted 13 months at this job, and during this time, Dennis decided it best for him to return to college, so he enrolled in Butler Community College in El Dorado and actually earned his associate's degree in electronics in 1973. Hmm. He also got a job at Cessna for a small period of time, but he was let go during the same year and fell back into his old ways and dark thoughts. So he has, like, all these different work experiences. He's not lasting for very long. Seems like a very quick guy. What was his beard's name? His beard? <laughs> Sparky big time. No. Oh. Oh. His, his wife? His wife. <laughs> Paula. Paula. Okay. Poor Paula. All right. Paula. We're going to root for Paula. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For okay. sure. All right. Somehow, he got his head on straight and enrolled at Wichita State University in the same fall with dreams of becoming a police officer. Later that year, on November 30th, 1973, the couple welcomed their first child, Brian. <sighs> a couple of months later, in January of 1974, Dennis was still in between jobs and getting bored. Hmm. Paula was working at the VA hospital in Wichita at the same time, but she had trouble driving through snow and ice, and since it was winter, Dennis frequently drove her to work. It's kind of nice. <laughs> Although, he would take this opportunity of her being out of the house and him being out of the house in another city to do what he called trolling. Trolling. And not the internet thing. Like, no, not trolling. <laughs> stalking. Yeah, stalking. <laughs> A.K.A. stalking. This consisted of him driving or walking around certain neighborhoods or school campuses in order to observe women, where he would single one of them out and use their image as the main focus of his fantasy. This is the first time it is mentioned that he came up with the infamous BTK name, standing for Bind Them, Torture Them, Kill Them. He came up with that? Oh, he, oh. I didn't know that. I he thought like, it was like a newspaper thing. He sends a letter to the newspaper and gives them like 10 different choices for what they're going to call him. <laughs> it's fucking hysterical. I'm going to go through that. Don't okay, worry. all right, all right. Because we got to make fun of this idiot. Also... If it was bind them, torture them, kill them, it should be B-T-T-T-K-T, not B-T-K. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking idiot. Sometimes he would plan to hide in women's back seats while they were in the grocery store shopping, but he never acted on it. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine? I can't even imagine. No. Yeah. That's terrifying. And I like in the imagine. 70s, like they don't have the locks and the alerts that they do now, like in cars, yeah. like it's probably pretty easy to get yeah, in the back seat of your car all the Exactly. Often. This frequent trolling, however, was giving him the urge to act on his feelings, and he was running out of patience. Dun, dun, dun. That's like, you know, when we talk, we've we talked about um, addiction and things like that on one of our mental breakdowns, and how you're always chasing that first high, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, starts out with a little bit of stalking, yeah. a little bit of, you know, whatever, and then you just, eventually it escalates Gross. so bad because it's not... Satisfying. It's not satisfying anymore. It's yeah. like doing drugs. Like, yeah. you do a little bit, and then you have to do more and more and more the more you do it, because your body gets used to it. Mm -hmm. Living in a three-bedroom farmhouse with his wife, child, and their dog, they seemed like the perfect all-American family to everyone around them. Dennis had gotten a new job with ADT, and during this same year... Security company? Yep. Yep. What? <laughs> 19... <laughs> yep. How do you think he broke into people's houses? <laughs> no, uh, that's like a like a serial stabber that like sells those door to door like knives, Japanese knives. 
During the same year of 1974, a new family of Hispanic origin moved in across the street from the Raiders by the last name Otero. I mentioned that they were Hispanic because Dennis particularly had an interest in Hispanic women. Mm. Among the Otero family living across the street were Dad, Joseph, 38, Mom, Julie, 34, 11-year-old Josephine, and 9-year-old Joe. Jo- what were their names? Joseph, jo- Julie, Julie, Josephine, and, and Joe. Joe. Oh my god, that's so cute. One day, while dropping Paula off at work, Dennis noticed the new family, specifically Julie and Josephine. He began to put a plan together in his mind, watching them both very closely for about two weeks. During this time, he was putting together a kit consisting of a gun, knives, cords, and various tools to break into the home. He would also watch to make sure that he knew the family's schedule and when they were coming and going from the house. So scary. Based on what he learned from watching them, he decided he would break into their home and carry out his plan. 11-year-old Josephine being the main target. Ugh. I know. She's a baby. On the morning of January 15th, 1974, Dennis decided it was time to put his plan into action. At around 8.20 a.m., Dennis made his way to the Otero house and entered the backyard. Once in the backyard, Dennis cut the main phone line to the home so nobody would be able to call for help oh once he God. entered. No, it's so creepy. Thinking that Julie and Josephine would be the only ones home at the time, Dennis walked up to the back door. He later recalled thinking about Josephine during this time and stating that she, quote, looked like she was made for SBT. What's SBT? Sparky big time, of course. Oh, (laughs) gross. That's so gross. Fucking disgusting. That is so gross. He's literally such a monster. So, thinking that Julie and Josephine would be the only ones in the home, Dennis was shocked when he entered the home and immediately saw Joseph and Joey were also still there. Dennis did not let the fact that there were four people in the home rather than two that he anticipated stop him. He pulled his gun out and pointed it at the family in order to control their actions. In addition to the family being in the home, their family dog was as well, and he, of course, began barking uncontrollably at the intruder. Dennis ordered Joey to put the dog outside at gunpoint. He told the family that he was a criminal on the run, and he was in need of money, food, and a car to escape. Also, you're a dumbass, because you literally live across the street from them. You think they've never fucking seen you before? (laughs) I guess not. (laughs) Well, they're also new. That's true. He might have just hidden himself. At first, Joseph was confused, and at one point even asked if this was a prank set up by his brother-in-law, which is really sad. Using a cold, calm, and collected demeanor, Dennis was able to convince the family that this was indeed not a joke, and he meant them no harm and was going to leave once he had these items. Dennis knew he had other intentions, in fact, as he did go in with the intention of harming the little girl. Dennis told the family to lie down in the living room, but quickly changed his mind and sent them all up to a bedroom instead and tied the entire family up. Dennis later explained that the father, Joseph, has stated that he had recently been in a car accident and he was suffering from a cracked rib. Hmm. This being the case, Dennis tried to make Joseph as comfortable as possible while tying him up. Because that makes sense. That's weird. Content warning. Unfortunately, Dennis had other things he wanted, And after he grabbed the things he stated, he placed a bag over Joseph's head, Mm. who immediately began to fight very hard, actually tearing holes in the bag in the process. In response to this, Dennis grabbed a cord he had brought with him and strangled the father to death. 
Dennis stated what happened at this point in a later interview with the statement, quote, the whole family just panicked on me. I worked pretty quick. So they were in the same room when that happened? That's awful. He went on, quote, I strangled Mrs. Otero. She passed out. I thought she was dead. I strangled Josephine. She passed out. I thought she was dead. Then I went over and put a bag over Junior's head. Unfortunately, the first attempt to strangle Julie was not successful, and she ended up waking up after a short period of time. She allegedly begged Dennis to not kill her children and was noted as saying, quote, God have mercy on your soul. Dennis, being the piece of shit that he was, grabbed nine-year-old Joey and led him into his own bedroom, where he killed him via strangulation and suffocation. Apparently, Joey rolled off the bed at one point, causing him to land face down on the floor as Dennis left the room. Dennis then came back into the room with a chair where he sat while he waited for the little boy to die. He just like, sat there and watched him. That's awful. After both parents and young Joey were gone, Dennis went to get his main target, 11-year-old Josephine. I'm sorry, I really don't believe that he strangled the mom and the daughter and then thought they were dead. Yeah. I really don't. I he think was he... probably trying to get them to a point and then stop. Yeah. It's really, really bad. He stated that he, again, attempted to strangle her as well, but the first attempt did not work as she came to shortly after. This next part is very bad. I'm going to put a huge content warning on this. Uh, if you don't want to hear about young children being gruesomely murdered, then skip past, like, five minutes, probably. Just to be safe. Just to be safe. After this failed attempt, Dennis explained that he forced the little girl down to the basement, where he put a noose around her neck. He informed her that she would now be joining her family in heaven. He asked Josephine if the family had a camera, to which she replied that they did not. Dennis proceeded to tie her up and recounted that he masturbated while she died. Investigators later finding semen on a pipe behind her. So it seemed like that actually happened. When asked later why he did this to the little girl, his response was, quote, I thought it would be interesting to watch her die. He also later stated that he made the decision to, quote, put them down after realizing he was not wearing a mask to cover his identity. That's yeah, it. that's the afterthought for sure. Yeah. Dennis went back upstairs to clean up a bit and steal some more things from the home, including Joseph's watch and a small radio. He grabbed the family car keys and pulled out to the cross street erratically, where he nearly got in a wreck with an oncoming vehicle. He drove to a nearby supermarket and parked the car. A lady that was close by later testified that she saw Dennis exit the vehicle and he was reportedly, quote, shaking like a leaf. Fucking pussy. <laughs> Sorry. He then tossed the car keys onto the roof of the supermarket and exited the area on foot. No one fucking saw that. No one saw <laughs> throwing car keys Yeet. onto a roof like a fucking busy fucking supermarket. It's like 9 a.m. There's people there. <laughs> <laughs> He walked back to his own vehicle, but when he arrived and was getting his things in order, he realized that one of his knives was missing. God, this guy is so dumb. This oh, fucking this idiot. Is so dumb. Decides he needs to go to receive, retrieve the knife in order to not get caught, because he can't leave it at the scene of the crime. Yeah, he can leave his jizz there, but not a knife. Okay. So he drives his own vehicle back to the house. Whoopsies, gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> and gets back into the backyard, where he finds the knife right next to where he cut the phone wires. He dropped it, like, first thing. <laughs> he was like, that was right when he got there. <laughs> it's just like, doop, 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 doop. Oh, my God. 
As smart as Dennis thought he was, while surveying the family across the street, he failed to notice that they had three other children. What? 13-year-old Carmen, 14-year-old Daniel, and 15-year-old Charlie were all at school during this attack. What? Unfortunately, when the oldest child, Charlie, returned home from school, he walked into the horrible scene left behind by Dennis Rader. That's so sad. 15-year-old Charlie later recalled, quote, I ran down the hall, went into their bedroom, and saw my mother on the bed, my father on the floor, and my heart just got ripped out of my chest. Mm. My life changed instantly. That's so sad. I know. That's, like, so awful. (sighs) Like, talk about survivor's guilt. Yeah. I mean, at least there was three of them left rather than just one, but still, like, I can't even fucking imagine. It's hard enough to, like, like, lose a family member, but, like, to lose so many, you know? Yeah, all at once. And then, but, you know, like, there was a few cases where stuff has happened to a family and, like, one child has survived. Yeah. Imagine, like, being the only child. That survived. No parents. Like, that's awful. Well, even this 15-year-old Charlie, he immediately has to become, like, the man of the house now. He has two younger siblings that are going to have to depend on him. Right. Okay. That's sad. I hated that. In April of the same year, 1974, so this is just a few months later, Dennis began stalking a 21-year-old woman by the name of Catherine Bright after his trolling when he came across her entering her home in Wichita. He learned her schedule similarly to the family, and he devised his plan. On April 4th, Dennis went to Catherine's home at a time that he knew she was not there and broke into the back door. Once inside, he hid in a bathroom and waited for Catherine to return home. Around 2 p.m., Catherine returned home. What Dennis was not anticipating, however, was that Catherine would not be alone. (sighs) Dumbass. Instead, she arrived home with her 19-year-old little brother, Kevin. Kevin did not live with Catherine. However, they had gone to the bank together earlier that day and had been running errands, so he happened to be with her on this day. Once the two were inside, Dennis decided to carry out his plan anyway. He startled the two by emerging from the bathroom and producing a gun, which he was pointing at them, saying, quote, hold it right there. (laughs) Now he's a cop. Now he's a cop. Hold it right there. Hold it right there. God, he's such a fucking idiot. Like, just imagine him, like, probably, hold it right there. Fucking stupid He used the same excuse he used with the Otero family. He was a criminal on the run from California to New York, and he needed a car and money. He then forced the two into a back bedroom, where he states he pointed a gun at Kevin and had Kevin tie Catherine up. Other sources stated that Dennis tied Catherine up, rather than Kevin doing it. After Catherine was tied up, Dennis attempted to tie Kevin up in a different room, However, he was not anticipating there being another person in the house, so he did not bring enough materials that he needed. Dummy. This being the case, Dennis had to improvise and use materials he found in the home. Because of this, Kevin was actually able to get free. And when Dennis returned to strangle him, Kevin fought him for the gun, (gasps) nearly succeeding in taking it away from him. Content warning. During the struggle, Dennis got a hold of the gun again and shot directly at Kevin, hitting him in the face. Kevin lunged at Dennis once again and tried to overpower him, but while doing so, Dennis shot Kevin once more in the head. Mm. Bad bitch. Bad bitch alert, yeah. Kevin at this point was of course bleeding and stunned, and he seemed to be dead or at least incapacitated at this point. Dennis figured Kevin would not make it much longer, so he headed into the other room where Catherine was tied up. 
Similarly to her brother, Catherine put up a huge fight against Dennis when he attempted to strangle her. When he realized that this was taking longer than he thought, and already freaked out from the gunshots, he decided it would be faster to stab Catherine multiple times. Than shooting her? Yeah. Because he actually didn't want to make another noise with the gunshot. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Faster than trying to strangle her is what he was saying. Yeah. Unfortunately, Dennis stabbed Catherine multiple times to the abdomen and other areas, inflicting deep cuts in multiple places. What Dennis did not know, however, was that Kevin was very much still alive, and during the end of this struggle, he had run out of the house screaming for help from neighbors. Dennis noticed that Kevin was gone and decided he needed to get the fuck out of there as well. Dennis ran from the scene on foot, getting to his vehicle multiple blocks away and drove off hastily. He went home and cleaned himself up, somehow not being seen by anybody around and not arousing any suspicion from his wife when he went to pick her up from work. Oh, Paula. Due to Kevin's attempt to get help, police arrived at the home and quickly rushed him and his sister to the hospital. Did they both survive? Unfortunately, Catherine had succumbed to her injuries and died a few hours later, despite multiple blood transfusions and Mm. surgery. Kevin was in critical condition due to his head wounds, but he ultimately survived the attack. Wow. Later telling investigators that the man who attacked him and murdered his sister was, quote, an average-sized guy, bushy mustache, psychotic eyes. Literally. I know. Psychotic eyes. (laughs) I know. Although that was a lead on the case, police had nothing else to go on, and Dennis continued to be at large. About six months went by with no movement from this killer, while Dennis somehow managed to refrain from killing and focus on school. Well, due to his narcissism, he could not stand the idea that nobody was looking in his direction, so he decided to take action to get himself noticed. In October of 1974, Wichita Eagle newspaper editor Don Granger received a phone call informing him of a two-page handwritten letter in an engineering book in the Wichita Public Library. What? An engineering book already? He's like, this is what I do for a living. (laughs) This is what I do for a living, by the way. Literally. Last checked out by Dennis Rader. (laughs) Names on it. (laughs) Dumbass. Honestly, like, I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Dummy. Ugh. Granger immediately informed police, and they received the letter, which described the killings of the Otero family in great detail that could only have been known by the killer himself. The letter included things like the type of knots the killer used, what clothes the family wore, how the bodies were left, and what things were taken from the home. Hmm. He mentioned that he took the father's watch and the boy's radio, stating, quote, I needed one, so I took it. Runs good. Like, can you be so he, much more cringy? Like, no, he sounds like a comic book villain. Like, runs it's like, good. Yeah, it runs well. Like, sounds like Rorschach. <laughs> the police kept the letter a secret for months in order to not let the killer know that he had been heard. It's making him more mad. Because he's like, good. oh my god, they haven't found my letter. Oh my god. And then he went, probably went back to the library and checked check. and it was gone. And it was and he's gone. Like, oh my god, they haven't like, even said anything? How dare yeah. they? <laughs> Who last checked out this book? Yeah. <laughs> they must have taken it. However, the letter also stated that the killer was stalking his next victim, preparing to kill again. So months had gone by with no movement from police, when a 26-year-old editor from the Wichita Sun newspaper by the name of Kathy Henkel obtained a copy of it from a trusted source, Hmm. and decided it best for the letter to become public. 
I mean, the police are actively trying to keep this a secret and not be public. And she's like, oh, I got it from a trusted source. Just post it for everyone to just, see. Yeah, just post it. Post, just post it on my MySpace. She published a story about the letter and how the killer was planning on killing again. And that the police were trying to keep it private. Good for her. Yeah. Among other things in the letter, Dennis wrote, quote, those three dude you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. I didn't misspoke. He wrote dude instead of dudes because he's a mm-hmm. dumbass. Also included in the letter, a chilling excerpt with poor grammar. <laughs> Bear with me here. So I said he sounds like Rorschach. Quote, when this monster enter my brain, I will never know. But <laughs> it here to stay. He sounds like a caveman. When monster enter brain, <laughs> it here to stay. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get through this. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, okay. A friend of mine was on Bumble, and there was a guy that was like, me like gun, <laughs> or something like that, and we laughed so hard. It can't just stay. <laughs> he literally sounds like a caveman. Okay. <sighs> Quote, when this monster enter my brain, I will never know, but it here to stay. <laughs> just, leave, just leave it all. Society okay. can be thankful, with two L's, that there are... <laughs> Oh, there's more. Oh, there's way more. That's why I'm like, I'm not going to be able to get through. Oh, no. Quote, society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at time by daydreams of some victim being torture and being mine. It a big complicated game, my friend of the monster play, putting victims number down, follow them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting, dot, dot, dot. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim. Okay. It's, like, scary, but it's, like, also kind of fucking hilarious how dumb he is. Do you think he's doing it on purpose so it sounds like somebody who's uneducated? (laughs) Bumbling. (laughs) (laughs) Towards the end of the letter, the sentence, quote, I did it myself with no one's help. P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code words for me will be... Bind them, torture them, kill them. B-T-K. At least you can spell that. <laughs> what is it? Uh, the, it just reminds me of a... What is it? Is it uh, the Eradicator? It's like from <laughs> from uh, Kids in the Hall. Oh, I don't it's know. It's just like, you just coming up with your own name like that? Oh, Come no. Now. It gets way worse. <sighs> Somehow, a few years went by with no killings from Dennis at all. It wasn't a until few years. It wasn't until March seventeenth, nineteen seventy-seven, that he decided to begin stalking another victim. So this has been almost three years. Mm-hmm. At first, he was stalking a specific woman he saw while trolling on a nearby campus, but when he went to her house, she was not at home. And Dennis later stated that he did not want to quote waste his opportunity, so he settled for another victim. I guess I'll just settle. He saw another woman with her son nearby and decided that she was next. With her son? This time, Dennis did not sneak into the back of the home, but instead, he walked right up to the front door and knocked. Cool. The five-year-old boy, Steve Relford, unwillingly let Dennis into the home after opening the door for him. A kid looks through the window and sees somebody they may or may not know. They're going to open the door. It's true. Inside, 26-year-old Shirley Vane and her three children. Three kids? Oh my gosh. Instead of taking all of the family members and tying them up like he had done in the past, Dennis locked the three children into the bathroom and proceeded to bind Shirley's arms with tape. Content warning. Did he leave the kids alone? 
He then placed a plastic bag over her head and tied a rope around her neck to strangle her. After Shirley was deceased, Dennis ransacked the home and took off on foot. Eventually, the three children escaped from the bathroom and contacted authorities. They were okay. Well, they weren't okay, but they weren't Well, yeah. In a later interview, Steve, five years old at the time, stated that he is still haunted by seeing his mother, quote, face down with a plastic bag Mm. over her head, a rope tied around her neck, all the fingers in her hand broken, and her hands taped behind her back. Oh, that's so So sad. Later that year, in December of 1977, Dennis had been trolling yet again in a neighborhood and noticed a 25-year-old woman by the name of Nancy Fox entering her home. After doing, quote, a little homework, as he later called it, on where she worked, who she was, her schedule, etc., he broke into her home, tied her up, and strangled her to death with a pair of her stockings. The next day, surprisingly, Dennis called 911 to anonymously report her homicide, simply stating, quote, you will find a homicide, 843 South Pershing, Nancy Fox, and hung up the phone. Why is he, he like this? He wants to get caught. Because of the attention. It's the attention. Exactly. The following month, January 1978, Dennis sent an index card to the Wichita Eagle, the same newspaper that had released the letters years earlier, with a poem written on it. It read, quote, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, wilt thou be mine? Thinking that this poem was in relation to Valentine's Day, and unaware that it was linked to Shirley Vane, the woman that he killed in March of 77 with the three kids. The newspaper filed the postcard away in the classified department and thought nothing of it. Oh, okay, so they didn't run it like it was, like, a Valentine's Day thing. No, no. Okay, I thought that was what you were going to say. Like, they put it in the newspaper thinking it was, like, a romantic poem. Well, I mean, you know, they had, like, male-seeking women and women-seeking men and the classifieds. Becoming upset that there was no response to his index card letter... On February 10th, 1978, Dennis sent yet another letter, this time to Wichita TV station, K-A-K-E. The letter is as follows, and it is hard to listen to, so content warning. Quote, I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on vain unamusing. A little paragraph would have enough. I know it not the media fault. The police chief, he keeps things quiet and don't doesn't let the public know they're a psycho running around loose, strangling mostly women. They're seven in the ground. Who will be next? He goes on. How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think that all those deaths are not related? Golly gee. Yes, the MO is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tie upmost, have been women phone cut, Bring some bondage matter, sadist tendencies, no struggle. Outside the death spot, no witness except the Vane's kids. They were very lucky. A phone call saved them. He continues, quote, I was going to tape the boys and put plastic bag over their head like I did Joseph and Shirley and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. This next part's bad. Quote, Josephine, when I hung her, really turned me on. Her pleading for mercy, then the rope took hold. She helpless, staring at me with wide, terror-filled eyes, the rope getting tighter. You don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of Factor X. The same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Havery Galtman, 
Boston Strangler, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, Pantyhose Strangler of Florida, Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous character kill. Side note, Ted of the West Coast is a hilarious name for Ted Bundy. Just saying. <laughs> Ted of the West. Ted of the West. It continues, quote, which seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. It a terrible nightmare, but you see, I don't lose any sleep over it. After a thing like Fox, I come home and go about life like anyone else, and I will be like that until the urge hit me again. It not continuous, and I don't have a lot of time. It take time to set a kill, one mistake, and it all over. Since I about blew it on the phone, handwriting is out, letter guide is too long, and typewriter can be traced too. My short poem of death and maybe a drawing. Later on, real picture and maybe a tape of the sound will come your way. So he's saying, like, I'm not getting attention for what I'm doing now, so I might as well kick it up a notch and yeah, send you a video. Yeah, send you a video or an audio recording. Quote, How will you know me? Before a murder or murders, you will receive a copy of the initials BTK. You keep that copy. The original will show up someday on Guess Who. May you not be the unluck one. This is the part where he gives them options for his new nickname because btk is not working (laughs) p.s oh you don't like that we could try out some other things quote p.s how about some name for me it's time seven down and many more to go i like the following how about you (laughs) the btk strangler wichita strangler the poetic strangler (laughs) oh he's so poetic bond age strangler or psycho the wichita hangman (laughs) the wichita executioner (laughs) It is I, the executioner. The garrot phantom. The garrot phantom. And my personal favorite, the asphyxiator. <laughs> shut up. Shut up. Dead ass. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. The asphyxiator. The asphyxiator. The asphyxiator. You're not that cool. Like, you're not special. It's so weird. The garrot phantom. The garrot phantom. <laughs> Garot Phantom sounds like a wrestler name. <laughs> I'm so sorry about how like brutal that Ugh. letter was, but the end is like fucking He's so bumbly. He is the asphyxiator. He turns English. What an idiot. And then he signed it BTK, even though he already gave them all the <laughs> Formally, the artist formerly known as BTK. Formerly known as. Oh, God. The asphyxiator. Okay. Oh, fuck. Wow. (laughs) This guy's a lot. Yeah, he is a lot. (laughs) Should I I name the episode The Asphyxiator? (laughs) People are going to be like, who the fuck is that? The Garot Phantom. The Garot Phantom. <laughs> artist formerly known as BTK. Oh, I might do that. <laughs> okay. I I really I don't know how I feel about the way that he wrote it. I don't. I really don't. He uses words like developing and like you know, not that they're like huge words, but for him to put it it it, it instead, instead of, of it's, it's the whole time, there has to be a reason. Uh, oh, I think he's man. purposely trying to, to be like. 
sinister or like he's you know purposely trying to make himself look like a dumbass because it's working. Yeah, <laughs> I think you know when people like Son of Sam who have really actual like psychosis that thinks like well some people didn't believe it but um you know these little typos are like zodiac killer Mm -hmm. you know like that's a purposeful game that they're playing i don't know man and it's with him it just seems like he like he idolizes these killers so much that he has to have like a thing yeah and it's just not putting s's on it's (laughs) that's his thing (laughs) in this letter he also included a poem named quote Oh, death to Nancy. Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemunyan decided it best to call a news conference to reveal for the first time the presence of, quote, the BTK strangler to the public. So that's okay. what they started to call him. Right. He stated, quote, we have no reason but to believe the individual has the capacity to kill again. On April 28th, Dennis had pinpointed his next victim, this time 63-year-old Anna Williams. Fortunately, when he was lying in wait for the woman to return home, she took too long and his patience ran out, causing him to leave the home. Oh, lucky her. Less than two months later, Anna received multiple of her own personal items in the mail, <gasps> along with a poem titled, quote, Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? See, that's, see, that's, you know, that's creepy. Yeah, not not putting S's on it. So that's not terrifying at all. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? It was that's accurate. so creepy. Could you imagine? <sighs> like receiving a box of all your own shit. Like someone was in my home. Someone was in my, my room. Someone was in my drawers. <clears throat> K-A-K-E received the same exact package. There is containing a drawing of what he had intended to do to Anna. After this, he took yet another hiatus from killing, continuing school in the process. And after a total of six years in night school, he eventually achieved his bachelor's degree in administration of justice in 1979. Cute. Administration of justice. He's the administrator. <laughs> administration of, of justice. <laughs> it is I, the administrator of justice. <laughs> Jesus. <sighs> During this time, and seemingly a bigger reason for his break in killing, was the fact that Dennis and his wife welcomed their second child, Carrie, on June 9th, 1978. Having a newborn meant no time for trolling, and Dennis laid low for another few years. Years? On August 14th, 1979, the police made the decision to broadcast the phone call from Dennis admitting to Nancy Fox's murder back in December of 77, with the hopes that somebody would recognize his voice. Remember, he called in and said there's a homicide. Interesting. While they got many phone calls regarding this, there were no tips that panned out. After nearly five years without any murders, police still had no leads on who this infamous BTK strangler was. Weird. So he hadn't killed at all during that time. Mm-mm. How can not he have such letter restraint after, like, not having restraint? In 1984, Chief Lemunian established a task force devoted to BTK's crimes and nicknamed it the, quote, Ghostbusters. <laughs> the fit should have been the the asphyxiators. <laughs> the garrote phantom. <laughs> this task force included a young officer named Kevin Landwer, and their sole job was to organize and preserve valuable evidence. It was not until April 27th of 1985 that Dennis would strike again. It's been like almost 10 years at this point. That's incredible. After an evening of bingo and dinner with her boyfriend, 53-year-old Maureen Hedge was abducted from her home, which was just six houses down from the <gasps> Raider house. 
What a ballsy ass dummy. Yeah. <laughs> Content warning. Unlike his usual MO, Dennis strangled Marine with her own pantyhose and took her to Christ Lutheran Church, where he was president of the, ch- the council. Once at the church, he photographed Marine's body in various bondage positions using black plastic sheets and other materials he had previously brought to the church for this reason. He took her to the church. The church he was the president of the council at. What the fuck? Once he was through, he took her body and dumped it along a dirt road. Dennis later referred to this plan as, quote, Project Cookie. Like, that makes any fucking sense. Okay, so now he's... Mission Impossible. He's like, like the cookie monster or something. <laughs> Tis I, the cookie monster. <laughs> Tis I. Just <laughs> So bad. Police found Marine eight days later, but due to the MO being different, not the method of killing, but the method of what happened afterwards, mm-hmm. they did not connect this murder to BTK at the time. At this time, Dennis's daughter Carrie was about six years old. She recalls hearing about the murder of Marine and being terrified. She would frequently wake up screaming and sitting up in bed when her mom would come in and comfort her. Carrie would say, quote, there's a bad man in my house, to which Paula would respond, quote, no, there's no bad man in your house. And it was him the whole time. <laughs> he was the lady. <laughs> I can't imagine that. You know, I think about that sometimes when we do cases where these killers have children and what their life must be like, yeah. you know, growing up, knowing what your father did or your mother yeah. did or, yeah, that's just awful. The following year, on September 16th, 1986, Bill Wurgle headed home from work to have lunch with his wife and son and entered the home to find his two-year-old sitting alone. He searched the rest of the house to find his wife, Vicky, deceased in their bedroom, the victim of a strangulation. Oh, that's awful. Dennis Rader had killed again, but without any evidence to tie to this this to BTK, the husband actually became the primary suspect. <gasps> suspect. Suspect. The hu- go through the entire vowel list. Suspect. <laughs> suspect. Suspect. The husband actually became the primary suspect in the murder case. Oh, that's awful. Dennis happened to be on his lunch break as well, and he decided that Vicky would be his next target, so he learned her routine and broke in with his usual M.O., once again, the killing stopped for a while. In 1988, there was a separate murder that occurred in Wichita, ending the lives of three members of the Fager family. Shortly after this crime, a letter was received by police from someone claiming to be the BTK strangler, but he denied being the perpetrator of this crime, the three people in the family. Huh. He's like, oh, no, no. Don't give whoever credit for yeah. Don't make them look like me. Right. However, the letter stated that the writer credited the true killer for their, quote, admirable work. He's like, that wasn't me, but whoever did it, like, had admirable Good job. Work. Like, it prop, was, props, bro. It was proven years later that this letter was, in fact, sent by the true BTK strangler, Dennis Rader. The next time Dennis would kill would be January 19th, 1991. 91. Dolores Davis, the one that we talked oh, about in the beginning. Oh, full circle. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. So the murder that we talked about in the beginning of the story, I'm. it's been a while now, so just a <laughs> reminder for everyone, that was the one where he broke into her house, yeah. took her with her car, and then went back to get her, dumped her um, off the side of the road, and then went back to the Boy Scout And thing. this is in 91? Yes. Okay. Somehow, Dennis Rader ceased all killing after this and went on to continue his seemingly normal lifestyle. He ended up leaving ADT in 1980 
and got a job working for Park City as a compliance supervisor in 1991. In this new position of power, Dennis was known for being a stickler for the rules. He left ADT in 80, but then didn't start another job until 91? Yeah. Looks like it. Okay. He was in school, remember? Oh, that's right. Yeah. He would measure the height of people's lawns and chase stray animals with a tranquilizer gun around the neighborhood. Fucking <laughs> psycho. He was like night, like what is it, a, the night, night watch, neighborhood watch? Yeah. He's measuring lawns for the HOA. <laughs> Literally. Like stated earlier in the episode, Dennis was also a Boy Scout troop leader and president of his church council. After 13 years went by with no more murders, and this is 30 years after the murder of the Oteros, the first murders he committed, the Wichita Eagle printed an article recalling the terrible crime committed 30 years prior by the infamous BTK, suggesting that he had faded from people's memories after so long. No! He didn't like that! (laughs) Oh, it's like the worst thing you can say! Oh, no one cares about him Nobody cares about him. He's probably dead somewhere. Wouldn't it be crazy if you were just like, come back? Well, of course, Dennis did not like this. And later admitted that this article sprung him into action to get attention, stating, quote, that really stirred me. And this guy has no idea. He's just, like, writing an article. Yeah. He has, like, no idea that that's, like, the trigger. Yeah. On March 19th of 2004, the Wichita Eagle received a letter from someone using the return address, Bill Thomas Kilman. <gasps> BTK. The author of the letter claimed that he took the life of Vicki Wurgel on September 16th, 1986, and even included photographs of the crime scene and a photocopy of her driver's license, which was not recovered at the scene. So he was, like... You didn't know that I was actively still kind of active, like still yeah. actively killing. Mm-hmm. Prior, this is in 2004, mind you. <gasps> so yeah, it's been a while. That's what the article came out because it was the 30 year anniversary of right. the Oteros. I knew it was recent. I just didn't realize it was that recent. Prior to this letter, police could not have definitively linked this crime to BTK, but now they could. The arrival of this letter showed the media that BTK was definitely still alive and watching. With no attention thus far, K-A-K-E received a separate letter in May of 2004. It was a word search titled BTK Biography that spelled out clues such as prowl, realtor, serviceman, telephone, and fantasies. So he can spell apparently. Why a realtor? That's what I'm saying. I think that the letter... Residential kills, maybe? Realtor? I don't know. Yeah. What police failed to realize at this time and later found out was that the letters R-A-D-E-R were also grouped around the numbers 6220, Dennis's street address. What? The balls on this idiot. <laughs> the balls on this guy. Just leave it alone. Literally. Like, you, you could, got away with it. live the rest of your life <laughs> out free. He's just such a narcissist. He doesn't want to. On June 9th, 2004, a package was found taped to a stop sign in Wichita and contained graphic descriptions of the Otero murders with a sketch labeled, quote, the sexual thrill is my bill. Like, you're fucking cool. (laughs) He knows how to rhyme. Also inside, a chapter list for a proposed book named, quote, the BTK story, which was mocking a story written in 1999 by True TV crime writer David Lohr. Chapter one was titled, quote, A Serial Killer is Born. 
Like, he's, like, write a book about oh, he, me. Oh, Ra- Raider was saying this. Oh, okay. He, like, left this on the... Yeah. On he's the like, I'll give you the transcripts. I just need, like, an actual contract. Yeah. And then I'm gonna type it up for you. And then Can I'm you gonna... publish it for me? Thanks. Yeah, and then I'm just gonna tape it to the back of various signs. God, he's so Street signs. In July, a package was dropped in the return slot at the public library with more eerie material. This package claimed that the author was responsible for the death of 19-year-old Jake Allen in Argonia earlier that month. It was later determined to be a false claim, and the death was ruled a suicide. In October of 2004, a manila envelope was dropped into a UPS box in Wichita, including many cards which, with images of terror and bondage of children pasted on them, and a poem that threatened the life of lead investigator Lieutenant Ken Landwer. Also included, a false autobiography with many details about Dennis's life, without his name, of course. It was admitted later that Dennis had honed in on another victim, which he planned to act on in October of 2004, but ultimately decided not to. In December of 2004, police received yet another package from BTK, because he can't fucking just shut he up. He can't shut up. He just, he's, it's impossible for him to shut up. He's, he's a, probably a normal dude in his everyday life going, like, it's a boring life. It, this is some, this is his other half. This is exciting You know what I mean? This is exciting. This is, this is his hobby. This is yeah. his, his vice. Yeah. This is, you know, but everything else during the day is just boring. Boop, 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 yeah. Just Dennis going on about business. This package was actually found in Wichita's Murdoch Park after KAKE received multiple phone calls from Dennis himself to inform them of it. He's like, hey, go to the park. Something in there for you. Go to the park. Hey, just go to the park. You want to go to the park? Let's go to the park. <laughs> Meet me in movie theater seven, you know. <laughs> it actually took police a while to get the package and multiple phone calls because he was introducing himself as BTK and they thought it was a prank call. So they kept hanging up on him. <laughs> He's I, so BTK. Just, oh, okay. Ha ha. Have a nice day. The asphyxiator. <laughs> stop, stop hanging up on me. Tis I. The <laughs> They finally found the package, and it contained the driver's license of Nancy Fox, which was also noted as being stolen from the crime scene. Also included in this package, a Barbie doll mimicking the murder of one of the Oteros, bound at the hands and feet with a plastic bag over its head. In January of 2005, Dennis attempted to leave another letter in a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck in the parking lot of a Home Depot. (laughs) Why? Why is it so difficult? That's so specific. That's his M.O. now. So the truck owner, like, walked out and saw the cereal box and then just, like, tossed it. They're like, what the fuck is this doing here? Oh, it <laughs> wasn't like, even it his cereal. I figured that... <laughs> I thought it was in the back of the truck no, already. He, like, placed he it in the It's like a box of, like, honeycomb crisps or something. Get this. It was later received from the trash it was put in after Dennis sent yet another letter asking if they had found it. <laughs> Wait, what? So they're like, they got oh, thrown did away. you find my like, letter? Just following up. Did you find the cereal box? <laughs> Was it a cereal box because he's a serial killer? I don't... I don't know. It's actually a good point. (laughs) What was the box? Was it like... I don't know. Yeah. Something to do with some perfectly good cereal. Some frosted (laughs) mini-wheats. Police pulled surveillance tapes from the Home Depot parking lot in order to try to... What? It's just funny. It was like... I forget that this isn't, like, 1970 or 80 oh. anymore, that this is, like, 2004 and oh, 5, yeah. and they have parking lot cameras. Like, they're yeah, just he's like, a oh, let's see who does this. Yeah. Police pulled surveillance tapes from the Home Depot parking lot in order to try and identify the man leaving the cereal box, but the tapes only showed a distant figure driving a black Jeep with no further leads. Damn. So they didn't get anything. 
I thought that was going to be the one that cracked the case. Oh, no. The cereal box. In February of 2005, more postcards were sent to KAKE, and another cereal box was found at a different location that contained another bound doll, apparently meant to be 11-year-old Josephine, based on the bondage. During this time as well, in his letters to police, Dennis stated, quote, Can I communicate with floppy disk and not be tried to a computer? Be honest. Like, he wanted to communicate via floppy disk, but they, he didn't want them to be able to track him and, like, find out who he was. He's a fucking idiot. So he was like, oh, can't do the, like, CD burning thing? Yeah. He's like, clearly, yeah. Police answered his question via a newspaper ad posted in the Wichita Eagle saying it would be okay to use the floppy disk to communicate. The ad stated, quote, Rex, it will be okay. Contact me, P.O. Box, first four ref numbers at 67202. Rex? What would Rex be? I don't know. Only six days later... Do they know that his penis is named Sparky? (laughs) They're both dog names. It's true. I don't know. Only six days later, BTK confirms that he received the message through another postcard sent to KAKE. On February 16th, 2005... A floppy disk was sent to Fox TV station uh, KSAS in Wichita. Of course, the police lied to Dennis, and they could absolutely trace where it came from. <laughs> Such an idiot. He just believed them. I love that. Right. <laughs> Forensic analysts him. determined that the disk had been used by the Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita, Ugh. as well as a reference to the name Dennis. Great. <laughs> he signed in. He's like, hey, it's me, Dennis Rader. Um... Like, all of his passwords and everything, just like, oh, God, what an idiot. A quick internet search determined that a Dennis Rader was president of said church council. (laughs) (laughs) This poor guy who's, like, not poor guy, but, you know, he's just not used to today's technology. It's just, (laughs) he's still living in 1960. With the new information (laughs) the police had, they quickly zeroed in on Dennis Rader. That's hilarious. Police actually obtained first a warrant for the medical records of Carrie, his daughter, and were able to get a sample taken from a pap smear from an annual visit of hers wow. and, and test it against the, the stuff DNA, from the yeah. crime scenes. Wow. Due to this, police were able to test for a familial match against semen taken from the Otero home 30 years prior, and also a fingernail sample from Vicki Lynn Wurgel. The DNA samples were a match, and this, along with other circumstantial evidence, were enough to get a warrant for Dennis Rader's arrest. That is insane! Oh my god, a floppy disk. Yeah. Bro. 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 It's like the early 2000s. What is wrong with you? (laughs) Why do you even have floppy disks? Because he thought that, because CDs, I guess, he thought were more... (sighs) Dennis was stopped while on his way home to pick up his wife for lunch and taken into custody shortly after noon on February 25th, 2005. With Paula? I think he... I don't know if he was with her when it happened, but he was on his way to pick her up for lunch. Poor Paula. Immediately after his arrest, law enforcement officials, including two SWAT trucks, KBI, FBI, ATF, and a Wichita police bomb unit truck all (laughs) surrounded the Raider home. So I guess he was home. (laughs) Uh, I don't think he could make bombs. I don't think he'd be smart enough to. Once he was in handcuffs, an officer asked Dennis, quote, Mr. Raider, do you know why you're going downtown? To which he responded, quote, oh, I have my suspicions. Why? I have my suspicions. It could possibly be this mountain of evidence. <laughs> In a later interview about this capture, FBI profiler Greg McCrary told NBC News, referring to BTK's outreach to the Wichita Eagle, quote, Once he raised his head again and started gaming again, taunting the police, that's a very positive development and breeds new life into this case. 
He also stated, quote, if he had been incommunicado and had not reached out, this case may have never been solved. Yeah. Dr. Catherine Ramsland, we were talking about earlier, she's a professor of forensic psychology who had actually been in communication with BTK for over a decade, like, after he was arrested. So this is, like, farther down the road. Stated that while speaking with him about his history, he confessed that he was planning on killing his 11th victim and had even picked her out prior to his arrest. He actually admitted to having gone to this particular victim's house prior, but when he pulled up, he came across a construction crew in front of her house and had to abort his plan. Ramsden stated about this conversation, quote, If he hadn't been arrested, he would have carried out the 11th one. She had also added that he said this complication simply postponed his plans rather than ruining them, ruining them altogether. So he probably just would have been killing until he died. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Like it, that letter really reignited him. Huh? Of course. BTK was arrested and taken into custody. Within the same year, his wife filed for divorce, all the while claiming she had no idea what he was capable of and what he had been up to in his absence. I do just want to touch on BTK's wife for a second because we didn't really talk about her much mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and there's obviously a lot of rumors going around that she like somehow knew about his wrongdoings yeah. and how do you not know? And, and they were married for nearly 35 years. Right. All the while, like pretty much, she was doing this. So Paula Dietz was born on May 5th, 1948 in Park City, Kansas. She was raised in a religious home with her mother being a librarian and her father being an engineer. Oh my God, that's just incredible because he's an engineer yeah. He would leave things at the library, and she also was brought up in a religious home, so, like, it's just kind of, you know what I'm saying? I didn't even think about that. Like, he almost created... His life around, like, his life? <laughs> no, well, well, kind of. His bad life has similarities to his, to his good life. To his good life. Yeah. Wow. Either that, or he, like, is so, I don't know... Like, because the library, dropping off things at the library wouldn't necessarily connect to her, but I think, like, it shows that he would frequent the library. Yeah. So it's just interesting that I think that he, or that he kind of, like, made himself a chameleon to what she would fall in love with and want to stay with him. And Interesting. That is weird. After graduating from high school in 1966, Paula attended the National American University of Wichita and received a bachelor's degree in accounting in 1970. That same year, she met Dennis at church, and the two quickly fell in love and married, like I said earlier. Paula remembered feeling overjoyed, of course, when she found out she was pregnant with and gave birth to her and Dennis's first son, Brian, in 73. However, it would be just six months later that BTK would commit his first murder. Murders, excuse me. Yeah. I think you said they got married, like, six, within six months, too. Pretty quickly, yeah. Yeah. Fast forward to BTK getting caught, it was noted that Paula was oblivious to what her husband had been up to. However, it came out shortly after this that Paula had actually discovered the poem BTK wrote entitled Shirley Locks. Hmm. One infamous line of the poem read, quote, Thou shalt not scream, but lay on cushion and think of me in death. Now, this may seem like a huge red flag, like to anyone listening. However, Dennis was attending college courses at the time, and when approached about this by Paula, he just chalked it up to a draft he had written for one of his classes. And it works. She thought nothing more of it and kind of was just ignored it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, due to his excuse, she also noted that the poem was poorly spelt and horribly written. This did not ring any bells to her when the BTK letters started surfacing in news outlets. In fact... Once such letters were released to the public with actual handwriting of the infamous killer, 
Paula was noted as joking to Dennis about the poor handwriting and teasingly said, quote, you spell just like BTK. <gasps> what? That's what makes me think he's actually a dumbass and he wasn't putting on yeah, this, like, facade that, that he was dumb. That makes sense. She, like, equated, like, VTK's notes and handwriting to his and we're like, wow, that's, like, really similar. Was he, like, dyslexic oh. or something, do you think? Yeah, he might have probably was. I mean, yeah. So, back to February 25th, 2005, BTK had just been arrested. After this shocking arrest from Paula's perspective, she told police that her husband was, quote, a good man, a great father. He would never hurt anyone. Shortly after his arrest, rumors came out stating that Dennis had confessed to the other murders in addition to the 10 he was accused of and arrested for. Even with these alleged confessions, DA of Sedwick County denied the stories to be true, yet refused to say whether or not Dennis had made any confessions, or even if investigators were even looking into the possibility of him being involved in other unsolved murders. So he was just like, hush-hush about the whole thing. That's so weird. Like, I'm- somebody's, like, telling you. Yeah. Like, they probably believed that he was dead, so there was, like, no reason why he would come back or something. And can you imagine Paula being like, oh, no, he would never do that. Wait, he confessed? Yeah. Like, literally. On February 28th, 2005, so this is just three days after his arrest, Dennis was formally charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. This is also when he made his first appearance via video conference from jail while being represented by a public defender. His bail at this time was also set for $10 million. $10 $10 million. And I didn't do the conversion rate, but I'm going to look really good. <laughs> but I'm going to look. So I just did the conversion rate, and $10, 000, $10 million in 2005 would be $15 million today. So just, you know, five, five more million. Five more million. <laughs> Not a big deal. On March 5th, 2005, news sources claimed to have been verified by multiple sources Dennis's confirmed involvement in the 10 murders he was charged with. Meanwhile, during this time, Paula and the children, Carrie is 26 at the time, and Brian would be 30 oh my, or 31. Could you imagine, like, your whole life, your father, your whole life was And he this. started killing before Carrie was even born. Was even born. So. They maintained that they had no idea of the monster that was living in their family home. On April 19th, 2005, Dennis actually waives his right to have a preliminary hearing. The scheduled hearing began, but only after a few short minutes, it also ended due to an acknowledgement from the defense that the state possessed enough evidence to send the case to trial. So they're like, whatever, we don't even need to do this. Mm -hmm. Only two weeks later, on May 3rd, 2005, District Court Judge Gregory Waller entered non-guilty pleas on Raider's behalf for all 10 murder charges due to the fact that he did not show up to or speak at the arraignment hearing. So he just entered the pleas on his behalf of non-guilty. Why couldn't you just talk to him about it? Yeah. On July 26, 2005, Paula Dietz filed for an emergency divorce against Dennis Rader, citing <laughs> emotional distress as the main reason. It's an emergency. It is. <laughs> Sorry. Now, this, if there's any kind of an emergency to get a divorce, it's this. Literally. Now, usually divorce proceedings take at least 60 days to take effect, but due to the circumstances, the court granted the divorce on the same day. <gasps> They're like, yeah, absolutely. Take like, a divorce. Can I? End? Sorry, I'm here to file for divorce. Yeah, what are the circumstances? Um, My husband's BTK. BTK. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, oh, I'm shit, so sorry. Going. Here you go. <laughs> On June 27th, 2005, Dennis arrived for his scheduled trial date, and in a shocking twist, he pleaded guilty for all 10 counts of first degree murder. I'll say. It was a long and grueling trial as the judge recounted each and every murder in detail, making sure that Dennis knew exactly what he was pleading guilty to and requiring that he verbally agree to each count individually. Wow. That's huge. I know. I have like these ones. 
After all 10 murders were pled guilty for, the judge then proceeded to ask further questions that are required before making a verdict, just regular things, um, like, you are Dennis Rader, like, obviously. (laughs) The first of these questions was, quote, Mr. Rader, as I understand it, you are 60 years of age, having been born March 9th, 1945. Is that correct? Dennis responded with, yes, sir. And then there was a long pause. Without being prompted, the next thing Dennis said was, quote, I just had some thinking on what I was going to do with either Mrs. Oterio or Josephine, and basically I broke into the house, or didn't break into the house, but when they came out of the house, I came in and confronted the family, and then we went from there. After this unsettling comment, the judge and Raider went back and forth in conversation, Dennis explaining each murder in gruesome detail, all the while remaining stoic and matter-of-fact. So the judge is like, just to let you know... Like, uh, not to let you know, but let's recap this so we know what we're agreeing to here. You're pleading guilty to these specific crimes. Is he, like, trying to correct him? Is he like, well, actually, it was more like this. Or let me give you a little bit more detail because that also needs to be included. Well, it absolutely seems like he wants every single person in that room to know exactly what he did because he's so proud of himself. Yeah. And it's, I read the whole thing, it is a lot. I didn't put it in here, mm-hmm. but the entire transcript is laid out online. You can find it. Okay. And it's like, I mean, pretty much everything we've talked about up until now, he just says all of it. Like, yeah. In court. That's incredible. Dennis's lawyer mentioned later that they entered the guilty plea due to overwhelming evidence against their client and the lack of firm legal footing on which to enter an insanity plea. They were going to try for an insanity plea. They're like, yeah, that's not going to yeah, work. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> This evidence included BTK's own confession, DNA evidence, and, quote, personal trophies he had kept from his victims. His defense attorney, Steve Osborne, simply stated, quote, from a legal standpoint, we had nothing to work with. On July 22, 2005, a controversy erupted on CNN's Nancy Grace show over a poem that was written by BTK being passed on to someone who then sold it on the black market. (gasps) The poem was entitled, quote, Black Friday, an ode to the date that BTK was arrested. The poem expressed his unhappiness about being caught, with one of the verses stating, quote, the dark side of me has been exposed. During the sentencing hearing for Dennis, featuring testimonies from numerous investigators and Raider himself apologizing for his crimes, asking the families to forgive him, victims' families were noted as calling him a monster and said that he should be, quote, thrown in a deep, dark hole and left to rot. Damn. That's heavy. Savage. Sister of BTK's victim, Nancy Fox, stated at the hearing, quote, Nancy's death is like a deep wound that will never, ever heal. As far as I'm concerned, Dennis Ryder does not deserve to live. I want him to suffer as much as he made his victims suffer. Brother of Catherine Bright stated about his sister's murder and his escape. This is Kevin, the one that got shot and escaped and survived. Mm-hmm. Quote, No remorse, no compassion. He had no mercy. I think that's what he ought to receive. Rader was also allowed to speak at this hearing, stating things like, quote, I know the victim's families will never be able to forgive me. I hope somewhere deep down, eventually that will happen. He was also noted as saying about himself, quote, a dark side is there, but now I think light is beginning to shine. Hopefully someday God will accept me. A fucking moron. <laughs> like, oh my god. After two days of testimonies, Raider was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences, which requires a minimum of 175 years without the possibility of parole. 
Now, you're probably wondering, why didn't he get the death penalty? Yeah. Because Kansas actually didn't have a death penalty at the time his crimes were committed. Hmm. The maximum penalty allowed by law was life in prison. Did they change so that he just after got 10 BTK? Of, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't have that again. <laughs> the next day on August 19th, 2005, Raider was moved from the Sedwick County Jail to the El Dorado Correctional Facility, a state prison in Kansas, to begin serving his sentence as inmate number 0083707. With an earliest possible release date of February 26th, 2180. 2180? He 2180. might still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> One can hope. I'm the vampire. <laughs> Other inmates that were on the 40-minute car ride from the jail to the prison recounted that Dennis made innocuous comments about the weather and made very casual conversation the whole way there. However... He's a people person. However, any time a story of one of his victims or family statements came on the radio, he would cry. Because it was all about the media that was talking about him, obviously. They had the radio on. When it would come up, he would cry. I'm sure they were tears of joy because he was at least still in the media. Yeah, and he was probably like, oh my god, remembering the fucking crimes. (laughs) Oh my god. Sparky big time. Sparky big time. (laughs) Sparky big time. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrible. Upon arrival at the prison, Dennis was immediately kept in solitary confinement for, quote, the inmates' own protection. Fuck for you. For the inmates' protection? Because he killed children. He killed women and children. They should have let him be in the yeah. general population and die. He just, yeah. He is only allowed out for one hour a day for sunlight. It's optional if he wants to. And is allowed three showers per week. Is that still alive, though, right? Beginning on April 23rd, 2006, Dennis reached, quote, incentive level two and was then allowed to purchase and watch TV, purchase and listen to the radio, receive and read magazines, and have other privileges for good behavior. After a year? Not even? A year. Yeah. The victim's families did not agree with these allowances. No, of course and not. And I don't either. Dennis is still in prison to this day at age 77. <gasps> rotting 77? Away. I don't even feel like that's that old. It's not. I feel like that nothing's going to kill this guy. He's yeah. going to live. He's a, ca- a cockroach. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is the story about BTK. Um, I do have some aftermath that I also wrote in here and I want to talk about um, because he is obviously very, very infamous. People talk about him all the time. He's been a part of numerous uh, documentaries and shows mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So um, his story actually inspired the Stephen King novel A Good Marriage in 2010. Oh. And he has been the subject of, again, many documentaries, TV shows, uh, recreations, and and stories and books over the years. Mm -hmm. Paula Dietz, BTK's ex-wife, sold the family home at an auction for $90,000 and immediately left town. (laughs) Good for her. She has not been seen or made any statements since then. Good for you, Paula. Good for you, Paula. Yeah. In 2019, Dennis and Paula's daughter, Carrie Rawson, published a memoir entitled A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. In an interview following the release of the book, Carrie stated that Paula, quote, sort of dealt with my dad like he died on the day he was arrested. As far as I understand, she has PTSD from the events around his arrest. Oh my gosh. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Police don't believe that Paula had any idea that she was the wife of one of the most infamous serial killers. Tim Ralph, one of the detectives who helped capture Dennis, explained, quote, Paula is a good and decent person. She's being downplayed by some people as a some sort of ignorant Christian person. But her only mistake in life was to care for Dennis Rader. Oh my god, that breaks my heart. I can't even imagine. 
During the initial trials and hearings, Dennis's defense attorney hired psychologist Robert Mendoza to conduct a psychological evaluation on Dennis, again, to determine if they could use the insanity-based plea. He also conducted an interview with Dennis after he pleaded guilty on June 27, 2005. Mendoza diagnosed Dennis with narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. Mm. He observed that Dennis had a grandiose sense of self, a belief that he is special and entitled to special treatment. He also determined that Dennis has a pathological need for attention and admiration and a preoccupation with maintaining order and structure. He ended with saying that he also has a complete lack of empathy. All accurate. (laughs) Yeah. Criminologist Scott Bond also described Dennis as a, quote, atypical type of serial killer, stating about his long times between kills, quote, most serial killers don't have these lengthy, extensive periods between their killings. Most of them really, really escalate, and oftentimes, this is what leads to their undoing. Mm-hmm. Dr. Catherine Ramsland disagreed with the understanding that BTK was self-controlled enough to wait between kills, and she instead suggested that he doesn't have the right circumstances. He just didn't have them back then. She stated, quote, He had to do this carefully, and it had to be when he had pockets of opportunity that allowed him to pretend he was doing something else, like library research for a course, or being out of town, or going overnight in a Boy Scout camping trip. He always had to have a cover story. After his arrest and incarceration, Dennis provided Dr. Ramsland a list of 55, quote, projects, potential victims. He called them projects. Wow. That had one, he had once targeted and included specific details about how or what he, like, what he was going to do to them. Sorry, just to talk about the, the lull, right, and him not killing for a while. We also agreed that, like, this is very much an attention thing. Do you think that there were maybe other areas of his life where he was getting that attention and adoration so he didn't need to kill? Yeah, absolutely. I also think that when he did kill, there was, like, multiple media outlets for probably multiple months afterwards that he kept seeing, and that was enough for him or right. whatever. Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. Like, so, when, you know, Carrie was born. Carrie, right? Mm-hmm. When Carrie was born, he probably got a lot of attention because he had a brand new baby. Yeah. Or, like... Working with the Boy Scout troop was, like, that's a lot of attention. Or, like, doing stuff with the church, that's a lot of attention, you know? So, yeah. Uh, Ramsland also stated about this list, quote, It's not like he was inactive during those periods of time. It's that he didn't have the right circumstances to go forward with something. Yeah. Ramsland and Vaughn both agreed that Dennis had an active fantasy life that allowed him to relive his previous killings during his downtime. According to Bond, Dennis used to cut out magazine photos of women and dress up dolls and trophies he had taken from other victims. He stated about this, quote, He told me in no uncertain terms in our correspondence that this enabled him to delay his killings. Hmm. When investigators searched his home, they found numerous Polaroid photos, not only of his victims, but also of himself dressed in various forms of bondage and clothing. Hmm. He often liked to experiment with himself with autoerotic activity and take photos of himself in these situations. Dr. Bond also described Dennis as a power control killer who got his pleasure not only from killing his victims, but stalking them beforehand. He stated, quote, it was all about the process of killing, and it was almost like foreplay before sex, where it would lead up to the ultimate moment where he would kill them. But that's not really what he lived for. What he lived for was the process. BTK was able to get the same thrill in the previous jobs he had held in power, position, positions of power, especially being that compliance officer where, again, he was known for being a stickler for the rules. Mm-hmm. This is funny. In fact, Barbara Walters recalled challenging Dennis on a $25 ticket that he had given her in 1998 after he said that her dog had been running loose. 
When Dennis came to court to appear on the matter, he had a lengthy file report and video evidence to support his case. He had been stalking Barbara Walters' dog? Barbara stated later about this encounter, quote, he looked for absolutely everything and he must have enforced every rule there ever was just because he could, I guess. Baba. Barbara. Like, what the hell? That's, <laughs> That's random. amazing. Lastly, his relationship with his mother growing up was frequently talked about and he commonly used this as an excuse for his shitty behavior as an adult. I, I genuinely do believe that his psyche was skewed. I'm not sure if it was nature or nurture, uh, but either way, I'm glad that this asshole is behind bars and caught. That and is incredible. That is my case. <laughs> um, could you imagine being Kevin? Like, you survived this attack, you didn't remember who this person was, and they resurfaced, like, how many years later? Yeah. Literally. And then seeing his face and, like, how traumatizing that might be uh, seeing all over again. again? Yeah. Yeah, that is the story of BTK. That was a... That is a doozy. A doozy. That's a doozy. Um, I had to do it. I'm so glad to be done with this fucker. I've been researching this for, like, literally the last two months. And so... But there is a lot that I didn't even put in here. There is a lot that goes into him. Like, you can watch documentaries. You can read books. Like, all the articles and stuff. There's a lot. There's a lot I didn't know. Like, I knew certain things. Like, I knew the Boy Scout, like, Boy Scout leader, uh, part of the church... Um, married kids. Yeah. I knew all that. I can still see his face yeah. in my head. So you know, scary. when that when you were talking about the description, they were like a bushy mustache and psych. What is it? Psychotic, Psychotic eyes. eyes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, terrible. he does. He have shark shark eyes. I definitely think that um, nar- narcissistic personality disorder is definitely the most forward presenting with this. He's like a control freak. He he wants everyone to talk about him and look at him and know who he is all the time. That's mm. he literally like. That's what they were saying. Like, if he didn't resurface and send letters to the news, like, they wouldn't have freaking caught him. He would have like, been fine. He would have never been caught. And he just, he, he just needed that attention yeah. so badly. And I guess he fucking got it because we're doing a podcast about he it. He just, so. big fat, could not keep his mouth shut. He's just a fucking idiot. Like, he's just dumb. Like, literally, like, all the things that, like, he <laughs> left his knife right where, the, where he cut the wire. Like, the, that was, you had yeah, one job. Whoop, whoop, that was the first thing back. that you were doing. <laughs> well, same and thing with you, the gun with Dolores. Yeah, and yeah. then you drove your own vehicle back there. Oh, my God. A fucking idiot. He just, he wanted to get caught. Literally. So. I mean, he even put it in his letter. He was like, people like me either die or get caught. And it's like. Yeah. So well, stupid. Anyway, thanks for, uh. Hanging out with me for a few hours. My butt is officially asleep. Yay! That was the goal, though. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Fall asleep um, butts. I hope that you guys like this episode, and definitely we're going to continue to do these, like, bigger names, I think, or at least I am. I don't know what you're doing, but I have a couple in mind. Um, but thanks I'm excited for, about my thanks for one. sticking through our not-two-parter and just a long episode. I like these ones. I like getting it all out there so that people me don't too. have to wait for the second part. I can um, never hear um, Sparky ever again sparky without thinking about that. Sparky Big Time. Gross. That also sounds like a wrestler name. The Asphyxiator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't know what I'm going to name this episode, but I kind of want to do, like, the Garot Phantom. <laughs> no! <laughs> like, no, that? that'd be so funny. Um, he'd probably hate that if he ever Amazing. heard it. <laughs> I know. I love it. He's still alive. He has access to the radio. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, well, we will definitely see you guys next time with another case. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Diagnosing a Killer. We have have, um, Twitter at Killer Diagnosis. We have TikTok at Diagnosing a Killer. We have we need to post on the TikTok. Um, send us an email, diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing and you want to support us, you can um, go to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash diagnosingakiller. And I think that's all I got. <laughs> My voice is like hurting now. I'm, I'm like, so, so hungry. So all right, we're going to go eat. All, all right, right, guys. Love bye. you. Love you.